Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me just as we enter a time of teaching once again? Father God, we thank you that you do see all things, that you are sovereign over all the earth, that you are now with your people who cry upon your name in all nations, all lands, all cities of this country. Hear our cry, Lord. Protect your people. Comfort your people even when peace seems far off. Give hope to the hopeless. Peace to the restless. Wisdom to the rulers. And joy to your saints. Knowing that this is but a moment in an eternity of your presence and joy. Because of your son Jesus and what he's done, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be doing some teaching in our series in 1 Corinthians. I just want to point one thing out. You may have seen these when you walked in. For those um, original, old-school Sedaris folk, uh, we did this for years and years and years, and then the pandemic uh, took away our clipboards. So if you've just been missing the clipboard because you love it to take notes, just know we've got some sitting right outside these doors here. Doesn't that feel good? It feels good to have the clipboard back. So um, it's going to be a fun day. You know it's going to be a fun day when the clipboards are out. If you've got those Bibles, go ahead and turn with me now to the New Testament. So Gregor read out of the Old Testament. So this is the writings of the people of God, the Old Testament, before Jesus came into the world. And then the New Testament is the writings of the people of God after Jesus came, died, rose again and ascended into the heaven where he now sits ruling and reigning from on high. So we're going to be in the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians, book of 1 Corinthians. So it's near the back of your Bible. It's a letter written from the Apostle Paul, uh, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, who now is planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. So Paul is, has planted this church in Corinth. He's taught there, he's raised up followers, disciples of Jesus for several years, and now he's moved on to the city of Ephesus, uh, which is just across the Aegean Sea in uh, modern-day Turkey, and he's planting a church there, he's helping the church there grow, and now he writes this letter back to the church in Corinth because they've sort of fallen out of step with the way of the gospel. And so we've been talking about that, the subtitle for the series is uh, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ, and so we've talked about when we do that as God's people, some pretty amazing things happen, um, both individually for us, but also um, the beauty that is the church and how we move together. Uh, and it's just hard to keep, take your eyes off of the church loving one another as Christ has loved us. So um, that's uh, where we'll be at today. We're going to be in chapter 3. So if you've got one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, this is going to be on page 1012. Okay, so if you want to... We'll cheat sheet, turn there, and we're going to be reading. But before we do, I just had to mention this. I saw this in the Wall Street Journal. Can you read that? It says, this is a prevalent question these days. How can I make my life a lot better now? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to try to answer that for you today. Here's what they say. They give you several things with several articles. They say, uh, by investing in denim that won't <laughs> leave you looking dated. So new denim. I need to, yeah, I need some new denim. Okay, so by escaping, however briefly, to an island 
is another way to make your life a lot better now. Um, also, by making your dull bathroom a plant-filled oasis, which we do plan to do out here in the foyer, by the way, so it's not a bad idea. Um, by learning the secret recipe uh, for restaurant-grade guacamole. By finding a truly decent $10 bottle of wine. Let's see what else we got here. We got by helping that tiny room in your house look bigger, <laughs> which every Seattleite's like, please help me. Okay. By dressing up again for work. Some of you are experiencing that now. And then by gearing up, it says, for a spring road trip. So according to the Wall Street Journal, that's the way, we'll throw that over there, to find life. <laughs> okay. Better life now. I've got, today I'm going to give you a way easier way to find a better life now. You know what it's going to be? title of my sermon is Forrest Gumpet. Act like Forrest Gump. I'm going to let that sit and tease you for a bit until we uh, get to it near the end of the sermon. So, I want you to have a better life too, just like the Wall Street Journal, but I'm going to teach you a much simpler way. So, here we go. Gregor's read Psalm 94 because Paul will actually quote Psalm 94, so I need you to feel... Uh, the weight of Psalm 94, because we'll skim right by it, and you might miss the passion that is behind Paul quoting from Psalm 94. Now, hopefully, you feel it. So let's read starting in chapter 3. That's the big three, looking for verse 18 in your Bible. That's the small, tiny 18. Here's what the Word of God says Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. It's quoting from the book of Job, also Old Testament. And again, Paul quotes, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. That's from Psalm 94. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is already yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. A person should think of us in this way. As servants of Christ and managers of the mystery of God, in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So the background, if you are new to this letter, um, there's some other teachers who have come into the church in Corinth and they've began to teach new things, things that are out of step 
with the peculiar wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they've sort of changed the gospel a little bit. They've sort of changed what it means to follow Christ. They've sort of changed perhaps um, the intensity of, of what it means to give up the things of the world to follow the things of Christ. And so Paul is telling them, please, please, don't be deceived. And even more than that, he's saying, do not deceive, what does he say? Himself. So Paul would say, don't deceive yourself. Now what's interesting about this formulation of deception that Paul uses in verse 18 is it's an imperative. So anytime you see an imperative verb, that's like a command. You you must think exclamation point. Do not deceive yourself, Paul says. And he so uses this reflexive pronoun. So two other times in the same letter, so when, when you're studying Scripture, you want to look for patterns in the letter, Paul will also use this idea of being deceived. So in, in this particular instance, he uses an active verb, which is, means that the person he's talking to is the one doing the deceiving, and they're deceiving who? Themselves. But in the other instances, in 6.9, he also talks about do not be deceived, also the imperative, also a command, do not be deceived. But it's the passive form of the verb. Why is this important? He's saying, when it's passive, he's saying somebody else is trying to deceive you, but you still must not be deceived. It's still a command. And in that instance, in 6-9, he's talking about people that want to deceive you with an alternative way of life, a life living in the flesh, living the way the world lives exactly the same. But he's saying, don't let yourself be deceived, passive. And then again in chapter 15, again, he talks about this same idea with the passive imperative. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't allow yourself to be deceived. And there he says a great line, bad company ruins good morals. So he's saying, don't be deceived by your friends. But we're focused here on deceiving yourself. Actually, I want to I show you one other um, place that Paul does this, and this is in his second letter to the Corinthians. So this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 7. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 7. So you just got to turn over the page. So he wrote a second letter to the Corinthians because the first letter didn't quite accomplish what he hoped it would. And this is often the case in life. You know, if it doesn't work, try again. And here he gets very specific about being deceived by these so-called super apostles. These people that came on, well, Paul was all right, we're glad he started the church, but we've really got the knowledge. We've really got the wisdom. These are probably paid orators. We've mentioned that before. This was very common in ancient Greece, and it, it lasted up through this time in the Roman Empire where people's jobs would literally be, they'd be hired. They're really good at talking. They've got sort of a slick uh, tongue and they, they know how to turn a phrase and people would hire them and pay them money to come and teach whatever they want them to teach. So this is like a common profession and Paul refuses to sort of be like that. He says, I don't want to be known for my eloquence of speech. I want to be known simply for the gospel of Jesus. So he's talking against these folks in 2 Corinthians, so the problem hasn't gone away. And I'm going to just read the whole section. He says in verse 1, chapter 11, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. He's saying to his dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the faith in Corinth, put up with a little bit of foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. So he's saying, I promised Christ that I would care for you and bring you to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure, pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. So he's saying, there's people that are coming into your midst preaching a different gospel, they're preaching a different Jesus, they're changing the whole thing, and you're putting up with them, would you not put up with me as I try to help you return to be in step with the peculiar wisdom of the gospel that you received, that changed you, that brought you joy? And he says, don't be deceived. He says, I fear that like the serpent deceived Eve, and he's pointing all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, where God says sin entered into the world because Eve and Adam were deceived by the great deceiver. So, you can be deceived by the serpent, Paul will say. You can be deceived by false teachers. You can be deceived by your friends. You can be deceived by the way of the culture or society in which you live in. But today I want to focus on you can also be deceived by yourself. Deceived by yourself. Now look, now turn back with me. This is so interesting. Paul is pointing to the fact that both him and Apollos are people that, that have challenged them, that have pushed them to be more and more like Christ. And now, it seems, they're being judged by the people in Corinth. Paul says, no one can judge me. A human court can't judge me. These super apostles can't judge me. I can't even judge myself, he says. <laughs> I found this so fascinating. He's like, I know I can't trust myself. I don't think I've been doing anything wrong. But he says in chapter 4, he says, I don't even trust myself. Only God. He's the one that can judge me. One day, he will come and he will reveal with his light what is hidden in the darkness. So in a uh, commentary on this passage, I thought this uh, a great insight from Anthony uh, Thieselton. He writes this. He says, probably they, meaning the Corinthian church or the people that were causing the problems, he says they used, uh, they used to select their favorites, their favorite teachers, uh, to confirm what they already believed, refusing to be challenged by the corporate group ministry which God had assigned. So what Paul's saying is, listen, God has brought a group of ministers. He's brought, I planted, Paul, or Apollos watered, and even Peter, the great apostle Peter. He came in and he taught you. So God has chosen to minister to you by a group of faithful teachers, yet you choose your favorites. You refuse, Thistleton writes, refuse to be challenged by this corporate ministry which God has assigned. Ministry now, says Thistleton, becomes an instrument of mere self-affirmation. And I thought, wow, that's so true. 
And that's more true today than it ever has. Because it's not hard, right, to find somebody that will confirm the way you're thinking, the way you're living. You simply Google it, and you'll find a pretty good article or a pretty good even scholarly report. Or you can even find uh, pastors, so-called teachers of the word, that will affirm what you want affirmed. We call this what? Confirmation bias. We tend to go to the people that we know will tell us what we want to hear. And guess what? This is great news. This has been happening for the history of the church. So if you do this, you're in good company. But Paul says, please don't deceive yourself. Recognize what's happening. Recognize that you are engaged in self-deception. If you are just looking for teachers to confirm what you want said in God's word. So, look at this word craftiness. Craftiness. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, quoting from the Old Testament book of Job. So, craftiness, what is it? I'll say this. No wisdom given out is without motive. Do you believe that? Excuse me. No wisdom given is without motive. Should you consider that? The world's wisdom has a head and a heart behind it. The wisdom of the culture has a head and a heart behind it. Your friend's wisdom has a head and a heart behind it. Your own intuition has a head and a heart behind it. Heaven, my wisdom has a head and a heart behind it. So look at verse five, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Paul is saying the same thing. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. So Paul, after saying, I don't even trust myself, Here's a man who God is using to write half of the New Testament. I don't even trust myself. I know there's coming a day where God will reveal, we've talked about this, the day where God will reveal all things, including the intentions of my heart. Now, he's not saying that doesn't mean that, well, we just do whatever we do and we'll see in the end. He's saying, no, be very suspicious of your own heart because God knows your true intentions. Even sometimes when you don't know your true intentions. So here's a definition that you could write down of what, what I think deception is. So Paul says, do not deceive yourself. Deception is this. Promoting some way or truth without revealing your true intentions. What is deception? Promoting some way or truth without revealing your true intentions. Intentions. So, do you think deception is going on in the world? <laughs> of course. It's all around us. People are promoting some way or some truth without revealing their true intentions, including yourself. Preachers have intentions. 
So I'd say, be suspicious of preachers. But also, be suspicious of the world, and the culture, and marketers, <laughs> and politicians. They have a head and a heart, they have intentions, and to be honest, most of the time they don't tell you what those are. So you be suspicious of them, just like I would encourage you to be suspicious of me, to a degree. Be suspicious of the world, to a degree. Be suspicious of your friends. They have a motive, they have intentions. Maybe they're aware of them, maybe they're not. Your family has intentions. Maybe they're aware of them, maybe they're not. And you have motives and intentions that you're not fully aware of. Because the Bible says that we have been affected by the fall. When sin entered the world, it fogged up everything, including our own ability to see our true intentions. We always have mixed motives. So let me, let me read something for you. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Throw that up on the screen, Ethan. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. says this. You've maybe heard this. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable, I'd add, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Who can understand it? <laughs> this is what Jeremiah, this famous, famous quote, Jeremiah was saying, don't trust your heart. It's deceitful. <laughs> the sin has affected it. And you're not even aware of it. You don't even understand your own heart. This was written again in the Old Testament, long before the words we're reading today. Now here's what's so fascinating. If we live suspicious of not just some things, but everything, in the end, we may actually find those things worthy of trusting, worthy of following. The problem I see is we're only suspicious of certain things, the things that disagree with us, the things that we don't want to be true, the people who challenge us, the people who say, are you sure? And we're not suspicious of those who say, yes, yes, and I'll go with you. Yes, yes. I'll buy the alcohol. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's go here. Okay? So I'm not actually saying don't be suspicious. If you have a suspicion of sort of religious fig, uh, leaders, I would say great. <laughs> I would say just apply that same level of detailed consideration and suspicion to everything else that comes in to your mind and your heart. And if you do all of it and you apply the same level, what's going to happen? The truth will rise to the top. This is one of the things I've always said about Christianity. I want people to consider everything. Consider Anything you need to consider, any religion, any worldview, any truth claims, consider it all. Please consider it all. Just don't leave out considering the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace that says, you cannot save yourself, you must be saved by the one who came and died for you. Just consider it all because I'm so confident that when you encounter the true Jesus, the true gospel, you will realize that it is not the same as everything else. It's somehow different. But a lot of people leave that out of their consideration. That's our big 
That's our big mission here at Sidus. Help people consider the true Jesus and the true gospel. And then let's see. Come what may. Only time will tell. The same comes true of being suspicious. Be suspicious of me. Be suspicious of everything. Just be balanced and fair and see what rings true through the suspicion. So this is what the strange words of Scripture say. And Paul's got no problem admitting. He doesn't even trust himself. The Lord will reveal. So, there's one other imperative in this section of Scripture. So you're looking for imperatives, which are commands. They tend to be like the verb you should pay most attention to. So the first was, do not deceive yourself. Okay? The second imperative comes in the same verse. Let him become a fool. So let no one deceive himself. That's an imperative. And let him become a fool. So the solution to self-deception seems to be becoming a fool. What? What is going on? How could that be the cure to self-deception? Let's look at what Paul said. Paul himself said this in chapter 2, verse 2. Let's read that together. Chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in much trembling, he says. But Paul says, to become a fool means to come dropping everything else you know except Christ and Christ crucified, which is Christ and Christ given his life up for those who trust and love him. That's what I came. That's the first step to becoming a fool. Knowing nothing except Christ crucified. And then he says another thing interesting in chapter 4, verse 6. So just, just right after what our passage this week, he says this. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, quote, nothing beyond what is written. So know nothing except Christ crucified and nothing beyond what is written. And what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the scriptures. Six times up to this point in his letter. So that's, he didn't, his letter, by the way, didn't have chapter numbers, but the chapters that we've put in, within three verses, he's quoted what has already been written in the Old Testament six times. So you can go back and underline every time he says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. So when he comes here and he says, know nothing except Christ crucified and what has been written about him. That's what it means to become a fool in Paul's mind. We've talked about this in, in weeks past. The world will think that's ridiculous. That your beginning of knowledge starts with saying, I can, I can be sure of nothing except Christ crucified and what has already been written about him. But this, my friends, is what I call the wisdom of Forrest Gump. This is the wisdom of Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, if you haven't seen the movie, 
Shame on you. <laughs> okay, it's an American classic. I sent out the link. It's free on Amazon Prime. Allie and I rewatched it last night. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, it's better than I thought it was to be. I already had it in my sermon. And it's like, oh my gosh, this, this preaches so well. So um, what does Forrest Gump do? Forrest Gump, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's a fictional story about a young man from Alabama and He has an IQ of 75, very low IQ, but he accomplishes amazing things in his life. Some have just sort of described him as the archetype of the idiot savant, of just like, doesn't get it, but he gets it. And he lives this extraordinary life. He becomes an Alabama football star, an All-American. He becomes a Medal of Honor recipient from the war in Vietnam. He starts a multi-million dollar shrimp company just to name a few. <laughs> also runs across the country five or six times. It's, it's incredible. And so the thing about Forrest Gump is that he just does what the people he trusts tell him to do. So you watch the movie. This is what will happen. <laughs> it's over and over again. It's intentional. Every time somebody says, run, Forrest, he'll say, okay, and he'll run. He'll say, you want to start a shrimp company? He'll say, okay, start a shrimp company. So here is a man who sort of personifies what it means to those that he trusts, hearing what they say and just saying, okay, and living out those commands. Now, obviously, it's not a story of Forrest Gump reading his Bible and just doing exactly what it says. But I would say when we Forrest Gump it, When we listen to the word of God and simply say okay rather than using our own intuition that Paul says may or may not be trustworthy, I believe we can live a life of great joy, beauty, freedom. There's something about that movie that just last night, I I was just struck by the freedom, of course a fictional character, but the freedom that he feels. Why? Because he is not playing this crazy dance with the parts of himself that have mixed motives. He still feels sadness. He still feels longing. But he is free to live in a moment because he's not always trying to talk himself into the things he wants. When you force Gump it and you simply look at what God has said and you say, okay, I guarantee you, you will live a life that you won't regret. Things will happen that you couldn't believe would happen. And it's so simple. So simple, but yet so hard to do. So I want to look at two um, Old Testament passages that I think reinforce this. The first we read the last verse of, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it. But I want to read the larger context. So throw that up there, Ethan. This is Jeremiah. And we're going to read 5 through 8. Or am I going to read the whole thing? Okay. Let's start in 5. This is the prophet Jeremiah. He says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord, turns away from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the 
Arabia. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots towards the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Interesting to see that very famous verse in its context. The question that Jeremiah is asking is, who do you trust? Who do you trust? What does that sound a lot like for you students of the Bible? That stream, that planting near the stream, probably reminds you of a famous psalm, Psalm 1, 1 to 3. This is what Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says. Throw it up there, Ethan. Did I put that in there? Okay. How happy or blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. What's he talking about? He's talking about his word, the Lord's instruction, what is written. And he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf will not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Kind of reminds me of Forrest Gump. Whatever he does prospers. So there is this consistent, unrelenting message from God through his word. For the people who trust in me and my instruction, you will prosper. Even in seasons of drought. Everyone experiences drought. Everyone experiences the pandemic. Everyone experiences economic downturn. The difference is those who are planted by the streams of living water, those who know nothing except Christ crucified and what is written, they continue to produce fruit even in seasons of drought. Did you meet anybody like that during the pandemic? That it seemed like, wait, are you going through the same thing I'm going through? Why are you still bearing the fruit of joy, peace, patience, love, sacrifice? What's, what's, what kind of guacamole are you making, <laughs> you know? Where, where do you get that recipe? This is the recipe. This is it. That you hear the word of God and you say, okay, I'll do it. The Bible says run and you run. The Bible says stop and you stop. It's not rocket science, but it will take you to places you never thought possible. That's the solution. What will it look like? What would a life lived like this look like? To do what? To read the word and do the word. To read the word and do the word. What would that life look like? It looked like what Forrest said. Stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> Remember that line? Stupid is as stupid does. I had to look up, what does that mean? I thought I knew what it meant. What that little phrase that Forrest's mom taught him was this. People would always call Forrest stupid. Oh, you're such a fool. See, Forrest would say, stupid is, stupid does. He'd say, we'll see. 
like we said last week, only time will tell. A person will be judged by their actions, not by the appearance of wisdom. So the world will say to you, oh, that's so foolish to live like that, to read the word and do the word. That's so stupid. What do you say? Stupid is stupid does. We'll see. And I didn't even realize this when I was writing, but I'll just bring this up, watching the movie again last night. You have this incredible juxtaposition, right, of Jenny and Forrest, two very lovable characters, generous hearts. One, stupid as stupid does, the other lives the way of the world. And what, always hap- what happens at the end? Spoiler alert. Jenny finds her way back to Forrest and his simple way of doing life. His simple, what would you like? Okay. And she finds true life with him. Stupid is as stupid does. Look around. Look at your friends who read the word of God and do the word of God. Here's what's hard when you're young. You might not have had enough time to see this. I'm a little bit older than a lot of you. It's true. Stupid is as stupid does. Some people might think it's stupid to read the word and do the word. Time will tell it's the wisest thing that any man, any woman could ever do. You could say it like this. Only time will tell who is truly wise. Is it those who trust God's word and do it, or is it those who trust themselves more than God? That's sort of the gamble we take in this life. I wonder how your life would turn out if you just simply and plainly followed the clear commands and example of Christ. So does this mean, Dave, that we never trust our moral intuition? Doesn't seem like the Bible specifically speaks to every specific thing that I go through. That's true. It doesn't. So let me give you a little guidance on this. Should I trust my moral intuition? Can I ever trust my own heart? I would say it depends. You need to be brutally honest with yourself about how close you're walking with the Lord. If I had you rate your intimacy with Jesus Christ right now, one to ten, ten being the closest you've ever been, one being the furthest you've ever been, if you are on the bottom half of that scale, I would be so suspicious of your moral intuition. I just would, because the heart, apart from a relationship with Jesus, is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And the answer is no one. You need his help. If you're on the other end of the spectrum, then I believe you can start to trust some of your moral intuition. Some of the ways that you take the principles of Christ, the way he moves, and apply them now to your modern 21st century life. But the wise person never does that outside of community. The beautiful thing about what we've been talking about in this book, or sorry, in in this series in 1 Corinthians, is that becoming a fool for Christ 
and it leads to wisdom, when done together in community with other fools, turns out being the wisest thing that you can do. So what's the communal effect then if everybody were to force gump it? What's the communal effect? Remember the goal. We talked about the goal of moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ is that we begin to look like a finely tuned marching band that's, that's marching and, and playing glorious music to the praise of Jesus. All in unison, all in sync. We've also said it, it'll look like European starling birds. Remember this analogy? This peculiar way they dance in the air and you're like, how is this happening? But they're so in sync because they're all in sync with the Savior Jesus. I also said it's like the best version or experience of line dancing you've ever had. Or <laughs> it's so fun, no matter how good at dancing you are naturally, as you find your rhythm and step with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So when everybody force gumps it, when everybody says, I'm going to know the word and do the word, that I'm going to know nothing but Christ crucified, that's where my center of knowledge is going to start, you start to look like this beautiful picture of a community that everybody desires. Here's the problem. The wisdom of the world is rooted in pride and entitlement. The wisdom of the world is rooted in pride and entitlement. So the fruit of that wisdom always leads to division and rivalry. Let's be honest with it. Are we becoming less contentious or more contentious as we move further away from the wisdom of this book and the wisdom of the cross? Just take a look at our own country. The wisdom of Christ, Paul says, is rooted in the humility of the cross. The humility of saying, I don't even trust myself all the time. The humility of saying, I follow a Savior who is willing to give his life for mine. So what's the fruit of the wisdom of Christ? Unity and friendship. So the Christian life, when the whole community decides to take the posture of Christ, paints this picture that the world can't help but look into. Right? Like when, you, when I say Forrest Gump, what do you think? You probably picture him sitting on that bench with perfect posture. I was, I was like, very good acting by Tom Hanks. Always perfect posture. Sitting on that bench, patiently waiting for his bus to come as he tells the story of his life. This is the posture of the church. That when we all sit in humility, waiting upon the Lord to speak, waiting on the Lord to give us direction, looking to the Lord for guidance with a posture of humility, we'll have unity, not division. We'll have friendship and not rivalry. And Jesus Christ will actually be high and lifted up. I want that. I want that for our church. I want that for me. I pray that when I get to the end of my life, people say, that guy's like the Forrest Gump of pastors. <laughs> he just did what God said. He read what God said. He did his best to explain it. And he left the rest up to the Lord. 
I hope God says that, or people say that of your life. That they look at you with the kind of sweetness and tenderness when we think of Forrest Gump. A man who did not think more highly of himself than he ought, but who accomplished great things because of his simple surrender to trust in those he loved. So, maybe you're not yet a Christian in the room and you're asking yourself the hard question of, this seems kind of scary. This seems kind of scary. Dave, you told me to be suspicious of everyone because everybody has a head and a heart. Dave, you told me that that we can't always know the motives of everyone. And so you say, Dave, for me to surrender my life, to base my life after the model of Jesus, his words, his actions, everything written in this book, that feels like a very big leap for somebody that I don't know very well. You might ask, Dave, why not be just as suspicious of Jesus' intentions that we don't fully understand of Jesus' plans that are beyond our comprehension. Why not be just as suspicious of that as everything else? Well, because Jesus Christ has already revealed his heart to you. His heart was ripped open and blood poured out for you. When you look to the cross, you know the heart of God. You can trust his heart. Whatever other strategy or way that is beyond us, we know his heart and intention is for us. So give all of yourself to him. Let's pray.